0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Dr. Anne Spurry treated hundreds of thousands of people across rural Kenya over the span of 50 years as a member of the renowned Flying Doctor Service and earned herself the cherished nickname Mama Doctari or Mother Doctor from the people of Kenya. Yet few knew what drove her from post World War II Europe to Africa. In his book In Full Flight, John Hemingway reveals Dr. Spurry's past, a personal history marked by rebellion, submission, and decisions that earned her another nickname. This one sinister, working as a so-called doctor in a Nazi concentration camp. In the book, Kamenwei explores the question of whether it's possible to rewrite one's troubled past by doing good in the present. And he takes readers on a remarkable journey across a haunting African landscape into a dramatic life punctuated by both courage and weakness and driven by a powerful need to atone. Booklist calls the book an exceptionally compelling contemplation on life's meaning, the nature of humanity, and whether atonement is possible. John Hemingway is author and award-winning filmmaker. He's produced and written more than 200 documentaries on subjects as varied as travel, brain science, evolution, natural history. He's won two Emmys, two Peabody Awards, a DuPont Columbia Award. Most recently, is known for his exposés of the illicit ivory trade. In Full Flight is his sixth book. We reach him, uh, I believe, it's home in Montana. John Hemingway, welcome to the program.
1: I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much.
0: Tom. So, so uh, Bozeman, I believe. Your your home base, and uh, congratulations! I believe you uh, recently received uh, honorary doctorate from Montana State University. Oh, thank you. Uh, so, t- tell us a little bit. Uh, how how did you meet? Uh, by the way, am I saying your name correctly, Spurry?
1: Uh, that... You're actually doing it um, totally correct. Most oh. people don't don't go to that trouble. And uh, so, well done.
0: Oh, okay, I, I I got it. I was trying to mimic you from your book trailer, so I tried to try to do my best. <laughs> it, uh, so, uh, Doctor Spuree, renowned in Africa, uh, part of the the famous flying doctors service, decades of of incredible service to rural Kenya. Uh, how did you meet her?
1: It was uh, it started about 1979 when I started hearing about her. Um, she, um, I was a a uh, freelance journalist based um, in and out of uh, Nairobi. And um, I um, i was always looking for uh, great characters. And here is this woman who uh, sort of followed her own gut, and she um, uh, did extraordinarily brave things, flying into uh, terrifying little strips, and, uh, and then uh, working on a tight schedule, and, and people would... Uh, you know, naked warriors would be standing under thorn trees waiting for her uh, with their families, and they had a variety of ailments, and she would doctor them at um, at ma- max speed. And um, I kept hearing about this. She was a character. She was gruff. She was outspoken. Perfect. The perfect kind of uh, uh, person I wanted to meet and uh, and write about. <clears throat> she wouldn't let me get to her. Um, at first. And finally, in March of 1980, um, I scored an interview with her, and in her uh, tiny little office at, at the airport, um, Wilson Airport at, in Nairobi, and she said, okay, she didn't want to hear any more of my stuff. She said, if you're at my airplane at eight in the morning, I'll take you, um, I'll take you up into the northern frontier. And so that's how it began, and I spent five days with her, incredible days. Um, I was virtually um, <clears throat> dragooned into being her, uh, um, her assistant, carrying her, her Gladstone bag and doing whatever she wanted to, setting up the card table under a thorn tree, and just basically following her around and, um, you know, trying, uh, trying to take notes as I went. And it was an extraordinary five days, and it it um, it it moved me so much that um, I not only wrote an article about her, uh, but um, I wrote other pieces about her, made films about her, and uh, you know, and I just fell for her in every way. She became a um, a pretty darn good friend.
0: She was. Uh, you, you've talked about how she's. Uh... Amazing as a diagnostician, very quick, you know, quick triage, and uh, she was able to treat a lot of patients quickly. I, there were so many—I mean, you know, millions—in her lifetime that she treated.
1: Uh, yes, uh, you know, I call it battlefield medicine. Uh, she could, um, and and it's, it's not me making these uh, these these calls here. Um, I interviewed a ton of other doctors who said that her output was breathtaking. Um, she would, you know, see 140 people virtually in the morning. And uh, she would reach conclusions um, at lightning speed. And, and you know, I, I can't say whether they were all dead accurate, but according to her peers, um, she was more often right than wrong. And, um, and when she didn't know her stuff she'd, and, and it was over her head, she would put that person in the back of her airplane and take that person to um, the local uh, hospital or even to Nairobi so it was just an amazing feat um, and even to this day when I asked other doctors about her output and we, and we think that uh, essentially during her career 45 years in the air working a, um, as a flying doctor she treated well over a million patients and at the, at the coast alone from between uh, the island of Lamu and the Somali border, uh, she personally um, uh, cured the, that area of the coast of polio uh, through her injections. Um, she had a special warm spot in her heart for kids, and um, and she would um, just inject one after the other, after the other, after the other. It was just amazing sight. And uh, she, I think, she... Um, um, uh, she she treated um, you know eighty thousand kids along the coast in in her lifetime it's an extraordinary
0: feat. Tell me a little bit more about her, about her personality. You say she was gruff. She was a personality. She was a character.
1: Yeah, she was. Um, uh, and first of all, I mean, she didn't want to talk to me. She said, "I I really have nothing to say to journalists." That's how it began. Uh, but in fact, she had a lot to say to journalists, and. Um, she was she was very warm um, after a time. Um, as a doctor, she had no bedside manner whatsoever. Uh, but in the evening when you uh, over a bottle of wine, uh, she would open up and she would tell lovely stories about her adventures in Africa. Um, there was, however, uh, and and you know, and we, I, I thought I was a bit of an adventurer myself, and she certainly was. So we we would trade these adventure stories. And that she really liked, and that was the sort of the core of our friendship. But there was one area that was a no-fly zone, and that was uh, World War II. Anything related to World War II, uh, she would stop you dead in your tracks. Don't go there.
0: And you, you tried a few times, right? But she, she'd always shut you down.
1: I tried, oh, well over five times, um, once on camera, in fact. And, um, and every time she would say, no, we're not going to talk about it. I'd heard rumors about this and that, um, but I, I knew that she was taken prisoner. Uh, I, I knew this. I knew that she had been in the French Resistance um, and that she had been um, done extraordinary brave things, um, you know, bringing in British pilots into Paris um, and setting them up with their radios. And and really, um, uh, her, her network was fantastic over a period of about three months. She was caught by the Germans. I knew that. And she was taken to what I believed was a concentration camp. That's where it got muddy. But I always thought that her reticence in talking about this was because it was so sensitive uh, that she had been, um, a, you know, mutilated or tortured or something by by the Nazis. I, I was sure of that, and that's why she was um, being so protective of her of her past. And as the book will describe, I was completely wrong
0: yeah this is i mean it raises a whole host of interesting questions one of which is do we how how well do we know each other? you know this is an extraordinary example, but uh, I wonder if this makes you wonder about other friends and what their past might hold
1: yeah well especially um in africa um she she virtually uh um i mean this book has just come out um it will have it it is arriving now in kenya i'll deliver a few copies in a couple of weeks myself when i go out there um it's going to um uh, amaze some people it's going to torture others uh, those who counted themselves as really close friends essentially no one in kenya during her 50 years there uh, knew anything about this nothing 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 and um and in, in one way, one way to look at it, and which brings it to almost contemporary issues, to the world of contemporary issues, is that it was uh, possibly the longest and most successful cover-up in the 20th century.
0: Yeah, that's and, and that in itself must have taken a toll on 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 her. I guess to, to you know, she. Uh we'll get to the theme of atonement as, as well. Uh, so um, let's take a break. When we come back, um, I want to hear how you learned of this. I, I guess there must have been whisperings, rumblings, uh, I don't know, rumors, but but— uh, we'll get into how how you learned of uh, what actually happened in Ravensbrook, and then go from there. Uh, the book is a fascinating book, In Full Flight, A Story of Africa and Atonement. The author is John Hemingway. He joins us from uh, Bozeman, Montana. More following this break. When farmers begin planting crops for the season, they must pay for necessary supplies such as seeds, fertilizers, equipment, and labor. Community Supported Agriculture, or a CSA, is a partnership between a farm and people in the community. CSA members buy shares the beginning of the growing season to help cover farmers' costs and then regularly receive fresh produce once harvesting begins. Researchers in USU's Department of Applied Economics examined behavioral changes among people who participate in CSAs. They discovered that more than 92% of participants reported that their overall nutrition improved during these programs, demonstrating that CSAs can improve people's diets while boosting local economies. Support for Ag Matters on Utah Public Radio is provided in part by our members and by the College of Agriculture and Applied Sciences at Utah State University, offering more than 70 degrees with courses available at
1: USU campuses throughout the state and online.
0: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is John Hemingway, and we're talking about his new book, In Full Flight, A Story of Africa and Atonement treats the story, fascinating story, of Dr. Anne Shpuri, who treated hundreds of thousands of people across rural Kenya. Over 50 years as a member of the renowned Flying Doctors Service, uh, she learned how to fly a plane at age 45, earned herself the cherished nickname Mama Doctari, Mother Doctor from the people of Kenya. Yet few knew what drove her from post-World War II Europe to Africa. And now in the first uh, comprehensive account of her life, Dr. Sperry's revered selflessness gives way to a past marked by rebellion, submission, and personal decisions that uh, earned her another nickname. This one Sinister, Working as a So-Called Doctor in a Nazi Concentration Camp. Uh, Fascinating book. Uh, You can learn more um, at uh, uh, Hemingway.net. And you can see the book trailer there as as well uh, with some footage of uh, Dr. Sperry. So John Hemingway... I don't know. Do you did you hear any rumors, any anything um, uh, about this dark past at her time in Ravensbrook, or, or did you learn this all after her death? Uh,
1: essentially, I learned it after her death. Um, it was, uh, I mean, I, people do do uh, gossip, especially in, in in places like Kenya, um, where there's a, a kind of a, a tight knit um, expat community. But um, I didn't take any of that seriously. One year after her death, in the year 2000, I was down at the coast, actually on my honeymoon, and I ran into Bernard Spuri, who was her nephew. And I said, "Bernard, I want to write something about your aunt. I was such an admirer of her, and I I just think it's worthy of a book. Um, But, you know, she never told me about World War II, and i'm puzzled do you know anything about it uh he said well no uh, essentially no details uh we've speculated but nothing the person who did know was my father he knew everything but he died one month before and did um however i inherited Anne's house and farmhouse in a place called sabukia and um there was a huge safe there when i opened the safe there was a file on top and the file said do not open would you like to read it well <laughs> boy i opened the file and on the top of it was a document that was headed Crow Cas central registry of war criminals it was dated 1946 and it listed names by country, Germany, of course, France, Holland, and so forth. And there was one Swiss, Anne Spurry, wanted for crimes against humanity, including torture. That's where my, my search began.
0: Now, her, her World War II story begins, or at least includes, um, great courage, right? She was a member of the resistance.
1: She was absolutely great, and I I really um, I delved into that, and I wanted to paint her in all her glory because uh, she had done some wonderful things in the French Resistance. Um, she was devoted all her life to her brother. She had one sole brother. He was about six years older than her, and she, she loved him. She mimicked him. She just, you know, any time he would say, invest in this, she would do it. Um, and... Uh, but uh, in, in the year 1943, uh, well, actually around Christmas 42, 43 um, he took her aside and he said, I don't know if you know, but I'm in the French resistance and I'm in a, uh, in a network and we're doing everything we can to, uh, um, to sabotage German efforts in France. She was living uh, at that time in, in in Paris, right on the. She had a beautiful apartment right on the edge of the Seine, and uh, and and she said, "Well, if my brother's doing this. I'll do it as well." And she set off with incredible gusto. Uh, she would meet British operatives flying into these muddy fields outside of Paris. They would fly in in a little airplane called a Lysander, and she would meet them and deliver them to her apartment where they set up. And um, she, had, she had a network of friends and colleagues all over Paris who were virtually sabotaging Nazi efforts. in It was occupied, as you know, at that time. And they did everything they could to thwart the Germans. She was a medical student at the time, and she was in Errol Hospital. And, um, and in March of that year, um, her network was infiltrated by the, by the Germans and um, literally hours before she was going to flee to neutral Switzerland um, she was caught by the Germans in the hospital and taken to a dreaded dreaded place um, in Paris called the rue de Saussure, uh where the, the Nazis tortured um, tortured, um, members of the French resistance, like her, until they uh, confessed. Um, we don't know if she confessed. Uh, she was then taken to a prison called Fren, where she was for about nine months. There she stayed in Fren. And, uh, and finally, I hope I'm not getting ahead of myself, and finally uh, she was transported along with hundreds and hundreds of other uh, prisoners um, by... Uh, a cattle train um, to um, to Germany, to a place um, um, which was um, a, a town called Fürstenberg. It would have been in East Germany um, up until recently, uh, uh, but it was um, it was in you know it was a German town um, south of Hamburg, and there she was marched along with these other women about two kilometers to this dreaded, dreaded place called Ravensbrook. It was a concentration camp for women only. I believe the only one that was exclusively for women. 123 women went through it, and only 18,000 survived.
0: Amazing. So, so 123,000 and 18,000 survived?
1: Yes. Yeah. Uh,
0: had gas chambers there, right? So you... the, the...
1: It, it did. At the end of the war... Um, it had one gas chamber and two crematorium. At the end of the war, in April, uh, just before the um, Allies, the Russian troops, came in and liberated uh, Ravensbrück, the Germans destroyed the gas chamber in, in hopes that by destroying it, nobody would ever know. Well, you know, obviously, mm-hmm. that's not the way history works. Yeah. Um, but they did leave the crematoriums, and I, um, uh, I've i been and visit, visited those crematoriums, and and Ravensbrook itself, and stood in the very block where where Anne lived, and um, it was one of the most chilling days of my life.
0: So as I'm reading the story, I'm sure everyone, probably you yourself, um, you know, I kind of put myself in there. It's it's a very human story, tested to to the extremes, right? And I hope I would have been part of the French resistance. I don't know if I'd had the courage. i don't know i suppose you know all of us have the uh, something in us that where we could have gone to the dark side that's what happened to and spurry right what 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 happened in ravensburg
1: well um Anne, uh was she lived in terror as i would have as we all would have because uh, every every day there were sort of summary executions Um, and, um, the Germans were extremely random in their selection of who they, they killed. And a lot of the prison guards were, um, I mean, I think it's fair to say were sadists, um, drunks. And, um, you know, there was one story I, I heard from a contemporary of Anne's, um, that there was one guy who had, who, um, Battered eighteen different Russian women and killing every single one, <clears throat> every single one of them with his fists. Um, so it was a terrifying, terrifying time, and Anne was there uh, from that uh, from about March of nineteen forty-four all the way until April of nineteen forty-five, and most of that time she hid out. She didn't um, cause Very few people noticed her. She was still a medical student. She helped as best she could. And, in fact, towards the end, she did some really remarkably brave things, um, helping others. However, there was a period from uh, the end of August 1944 right up until the end of the year, beginning of 1945, when everything changed. And the name of that change was Block ten it was a block for um for tuberculars and for lunatics and it was into that block that um and was transferred and the block elder of block ten was a woman called carmen Mori, arguably one of the most astoundingly duplicitous uh venomous and yet seductive women of virtually all time i mean she she's uh, uh, absolutely extraordinary unfortunately there's only one book written about her um about her exclusively and it's in it's it was published in switzerland in german however um um i've i've been able i talked to the biographer i've talked to members of the family and and you know there's a huge amount of testimony in any case and fell under Carmen Mori's influence during those four months in Block Ten.
0: Carmen Morey, did. Uh, one of her nicknames was the Black Angel, right? Uh, so, so the Black Angel, yes. Uh, and in, in in the end, Carmen Morey, uh, the I guess the War Crimes Tribunal sentenced her to death. She, uh, what was she accused of doing?
1: Um, Mori was was accused of um, torture. Of murder and of selection for the gas chamber, um, and um, during the um, after the war, um, she was found out, and she was imprisoned by the the British um, army of occupation. And um, during the um, and there was uh, there were a number of different trials. The most famous, obviously, is Nuremberg. But um, she was tried in, in Hamburg, and that was equally. At the time, it was, it was almost as famous. And um, she, along with um, 15 others, um, uh, were, were tried for uh, you know, serious crimes against humanity, and she was found guilty and sentenced to be hanged. And in 1947, I think it was March of that year, um, she um, committed suicide about two months, two weeks before her sentence
0: was carried out. Mm. So uh, you yeah, have Notorious, and you say that uh, Anshbury fell under her spell. Did she participate with Maury in, in this, you know, this, these dark works of death?
1: Well, I don't want to give away too much mm. of the book, um, but, but the point is um, uh, that, that from testimony— and from testimony not only delivered in Hamburg in, in the war crimes trials, um, but I had the great good fortune of, uh, of meeting three remarkable ladies who had been in Ravensbrück during the same period of time as Anne, uh, two of them in Block 10. And um, and their testimony was absolutely chilling beyond belief. Uh, in answer to your question, um Anne was, as she said, in her own words, uh, in some of that testimony, she was bewitched by Carmen Mori. Hmm. And um, it was, and it, the, the, all the evidence points to her having been an absolute uh, co conspirator in much of those crimes during that four month period. Uh, <clears throat> now, Anne was not tried. In Hamburg, uh, she was uh, uh, the the uh, attorney for um, Karen Mori. Begged her to come, uh, but she knew enough not to show up. And but by, <clears throat> by that time, she was represented by by counsel herself. Her parents were wealthy people. Uh, they were t- in textiles in uh, what is was known as Alsace in, in France. Uh, a town called Moulouse, and um, and they mounted uh, an extraordinarily vigorous defense um, uh, in trials that were held against Anne in Switzerland and in France. Uh, there were actually two trials in France. One was um, <clears throat> was a um, one a It was called an honor court and it was put together by the members of the French Resistance, her fellow members. And they tried her, and it's the only um, uh, uh, legal hearing in which, which she attended herself. And, <clears throat> and she claimed and she admitted and she confessed that she had been bewitched by Carmen Mori. So, uh, uh, and what she, had, what she did in those, uh, uh, during that period... Is horrifying to the extreme.
0: You just joined us. We're talking with John Hemingway, talking about his new book, a fascinating book, in full flight, a story of Africa and atonement. So, John Hemingway, you're you have known and spuri over many years as as a friend, as this saint quote unquote in Africa. Now you're learning the the darker past. What what was the effect on you?
1: Well, it 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 still is painful. I mean I I I must confess I I I really uh, I venerated Anne. She was this um bigger than life figure. She was um truly beloved amongst the tribal people where she worked. And you know, I was very proud to call her my friend and we would often uh, see each other either on the coast or in Nairobi. I saw so I went to her farm once or twice and um I would take her to dinner in in Nairobi and um and and there were always very interesting dinners because she <coughs> she kind of r- ruled the roost. <coughs> she would um uh, virtually order for me, she would select the wine, and she would set the um the agenda for the conversation. It was <coughs> it was um uh, dazzling in its um in its effect. I mean, she was just wonderful. I mean, very strong willed and, and uh, amusing, and uh, I loved her. And, and, uh, um, and so the effect of discovering what had happened was virtually unreal to me. I, I, I still have trouble digesting it all because essentially what I discovered was a, <clears throat> a woman who had been a saint for 50 years of her, her life. And had been a monster for four. And um, and that's the problem that I struggle with to this day. But I thought it was so important um, that I had to put it down in this book. Uh, A lot of people, in Kenya especially, um, believe that the only part of her life that was worth talking about were her glory days in Kenya. <clears throat> and and in in looking and, and going back and struggling with this I uh, come to the conclusion that if th- there are very few fa- saints who achieve sanctum sanctity by um, a life that um, embarked uh, uh, with good deeds starting at the beginning in other words um, it's uh, the, the lives of saints are not straight lines. Um, and Anne certainly uh, did not live a straight line. She lived a life of one of the most extravagantly uh, large arcs of all times. And, and, and that arc is what actually, I believe, um, informs us as to what it is to be a human being. I believe that we have a little bit of Anne in all of us. We have a little bit of a, of a past that we'd like to forget, <clears throat> and, um, and, and a lot of the good we'd like to be remembered by. Um, Anne uh, had all of that in spades. And, um, I mean, her story is like no one else's, at least in my, in my life experience. And so I think she informs us about who we are, and and, uh, and so I, I guess it's that story that, that I've been <clears throat> tormented, tormented by, <clears throat> tortured by, and um, and and in a way, and I hate to use this word, enchanted by, because um, she did something that very very few people um, can do, um, and um, I, I, I just think that's an astounding feat. Um, And uh, I think it tells us a lot about who we are today, and it it tells us about how we can recover. Um, And and the question is, did she recover? Well, um, I I still can't say. Hmm. Um, I I think that I will leave that issue to theologians, um, whether you can atone for um, high crimes in your life. Uh, by doing good. I, I still don't know. I do know that you have to try. And I do know that Anne tried in the most remarkable way, in total silence, and I believe um, at, at great peril to herself. I think she lived a very uncomfortable life, even though she, gave, she presented herself as one of the most satisfied people of all times, in fact, I don't think she was anywhere near that.
0: Let's take another break when we come back. More, um, and I want to get to her. You know, I think it's pretty clear what her motives were, what drove her. That wasn't entirely clear to, uh, you know, to friends like John Hemingway. Uh, I just want to quote this, and then we'll talk about it following the break. This is John Hemingway in, a, in an interview with his publisher. Her days in Block 10 were both horrific and recognizable, and matched with her transformation in Africa, resolved into a morality play. Let's talk more about that following this break. The book is In Full Flight, A Story of Africa and Atonement. The author is John Hemingway. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra performing Ray Vaughan Williams' Sancta Civitas, The Holy City, and Cantata Dona
1: Nobis Pacem* Plea for Peace, Saturday, April 7th at 7.30 p.m. in the Danes Concert Hall. Tickets at AmericanFestivalChorus.org.
0: Few places in the world are as closely identified with dance as a theater in the heart of Moscow, the Bolshoi. There is no other ballet that can offer such variety, such high quality of performances as the ones at the Bolshoi Theater. We sit down with the Bolshoi prima ballerina, Olga Smirnova, this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News.
1: Join us today from 3 to 6.30 with Shalane smith Needham on
0: Utah Public Radio. Tune in for Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. Coming up, the power and perils of satire. After
1: the Charlie Hebdo attacks in Paris, Pope Francis said that religion should never be the target of satire.
0: Well, if you can't mock people's silly religious views, what can you mock?
1: But there have to be some limits on satire.
0: Not if you believe in freedom of expression. The power and
1: perils of satire. Next time on Philosophy Talk. Join us tomorrow at 4 a.m. on Utah Public Radio.
0: Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We've reached our last segment with John Hemingway. He's joining us from his home in Bozeman, Montana. The latest book, a fascinating book, In Full Flight, this, A Story of Africa and Atonement. And it's the story of Dr. Ann spurry uh, who uh, over some five decades treated hundreds of thousands of people across rural Kenya uh, as a member of the renowned Flying Doctors Service. And uh, after her death was discovered, uh, John Hemingway uncovers the full story uh, that she had a, a dark past in World War II in the concentration camp Ravensbruck, and uh, so that's the uh, that's the, the nub of the story. Let me just. Uh, read again, quoting John Hemingway in an uh, interview with his publisher. Her days in Block Ten, talking about Raven's book, were both horrific and recognizable, and matched with her transformation in Africa resolved into a morality play. Uh, so, uh, I guess for you and it, I, probably for most readers, it does resolve. You you do see now the, the what drove her.
1: Um, I believe I do, um, and the, the what I would have. Like to have added to all that uh, is that she served virtually as her own judge, jury, and executioner throughout her life. Um, I don't think she slept soundly. I think that she struggled with this. I think she had deep and dark and conflicted memories of uh, of Ravensbrook. She claimed right up until about one year before she died. She told somebody, a colleague of hers at the Flying Doctor series, that um, Ravensbrook was inconsequential; that um, nothing really happened, and it didn't really affect her life. Um, that was one year before she died, and I believe that was an outrageous lie. And uh, that's the way she she uh, she 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 did this. And it's it's so. I'm, um, it's so interesting, I reflect on <clears throat> other Nazi war criminals, um, Mengele, um, Bormann, and uh, uh, others who who fled to Latin America, hid out in Paraguay and Bolivia and Argentina, changed their names and went into hiding in little tiny towns, and, and, and had huge cover-up networks. Not Anne. She... Uh, uh, we do know she was never allowed to practice medicine in France or in its dependencies. So she went to a British colony, and there she hid out um, with her full name. And in time, she became more and more famous. And she used fame as a cover, um, which, which seems to be um, a, a contradiction in terms. But uh, the more famous she became the more she could, she could drive the interviews and, um, and she could control the information. And people came to a point where they didn't want to um, challenge her. And it was, I mean, in retrospect, it was an extraordinary uh, protective device. It was camouflage of a completely new, new order. And she was hugely successful. Um And it would have been totally successful almost up until her death, and then something happened
0: um so I don't know if you want to reveal what happened to it
1: but... well i i i yes, I mean, hmm. I could tell part of it hmm. uh, <clears throat> about about a year and a half before her death, she received a letter from the Swiss ambassador. Saying that there was um, um, somebody would like to make contact with her, and, um, and would she carefully look at this uh, a set of, of a manuscript um, and, um, and respond to it? Well, there were lots of things in the manuscript, but there, the, the, there was one 80 um, page document, and it was a master's thesis from the University of Heidelberg by a young woman called Bettina Durer. And Bettina Durer had gone out and had written this paper about how Carmen Mori could have um, had such power, even though she was a prisoner. How did she create the power of, of her life in Block 10? And half the, uh, half the master's thesis is, is dedicated, is, um, is also about Anne Spurry. So here it is. Uh, Anne had uh, gathered up all sorts of papers that she stored in that one safe in Sabukia, her, her farmhouse. And um, it's my feeling that she that most of the, uh, the stuff that she had there were testimony favorable to her uh, from the court proceedings. Um, she didn't have anything that was negative except for that one Crowcast uh, document, and um, um, and she. Had that there, in case somebody came calling. Well, in effect, Bettina Durer, uh, with this master's thesis, came calling one and a half years before she died, and um, I finally tracked down Bettina. It was hard because um, university the uh, University of Heidelberg doesn't really have an alumni association, as we as, as we know about it, and that we have so frequently in in U.S. universities. So it was a bit of an operation getting hold of her. Um, And I had a wonderful conversation with her. Um, And she told me, she told me that after having this document delivered to Anne in Nairobi, she, um, she didn't know that Anne was still alive. She was unaware of that until one day she picked up the the morning newspaper, over breakfast. And she discovered Anne was very much alive and a famous flying doctor. And it was a loving portrait of of Anne and all the adventures she uh, she had in Africa and all the good she was doing. So she immediately got on the phone, got the number for Anne Shbury, called her in Nairobi, got Anne on the phone, and said, I'm Bettina Durer, I've just written this this master's thesis about you and Carmen Mori, and I'd love to ask you a few questions. And there was this long pause on the line, and then the phone went click. And that was as close as she got to uh, to to um, Ansbury, and that was and that was the person that Anne had dreaded for fifty years, the person who came calling, who knew
0: what had happened in Block Ten. I wonder, uh, you had um, the good fortune to, uh, you found three women who had been in or with Anne right? Uh, the, the one that st- stood out to me was, uh, I think to you as well, was, uh, am I saying this correctly, Lu- Louise Leportz? Uh
1: Yeah, Louise Leportz is um, an extraordinary woman. Um, uh, there were three, uh, two of them lived in Paris and Louise lived in Bordeaux, and she was a um, a lung specialist and a family physician there, all of her life. And when I got to know her, um, she was in her late 80s, and her testimony, her the in in interviews that I had with her, were so compelling that I went back a, a total of four times. And uh, sadly, she's she died about a year and a half after my last interview. Uh, but in those interviews. Um, she uh, she told me what it was like serving as a doctor in Block Ten um, under uh, this this young woman who had been given doctor status by Carmen Mori, um, and she she just couldn't believe that here she was uh, very qualified and the person who was calling all the shots. Was a young medical student, uh, but the young medical student had the protection of Carmen Mori, and uh, she told him, uh, told me stories of, of just how extraordinary that combination was, and how totally lethal it was, and she struggled um, with, uh, she struggled with everything. She struggled with the, the whole notion of, of of, you know, crime and punishment and, um, and, and forgiveness. Um, I mean, she told one, one story. Uh, first of all, uh, Carmen Mori was a, a real charmer, if she wanted to be. She spoke six languages, and she had apparently a very, very um, um, enchanting alto voice, and she at one point wanted to be a singer uh, much like Marlena Dietrich, and um, and she uh, and the year was uh, 1944. It was just at Christmas, and at this at this time, 800 people a day were being killed by the Germans um, in um, in Ravensbruck, and a great many of those came out of Block 10 with the compliance, um, and connivance of Carmen Morey and, and Spurry. And, and it was, uh, and, and it, it was just the, the most terrifying time she tells of a, of a, of a moment when she sat with a, with a woman who was, uh, had tuberculosis and had been severely, uh, uh hurt. And, um, and she, she, uh, lay beside her holding her hands um as and 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 having given her as much uh, medication to uh, allay the pain um and she lay there with her until she died and at that very moment she received a christmas card from Anne spurry and carmen maury and it was um and was quite a passable um illustrator and uh, she had illustrated a uh um, a, a, a jolly snowman with a broom and um, a couple of other cartoons in it and was wishing her a Merry Christmas uh, and as, as Dr. Laporte said it was surreal it was absolutely surreal and she, it was so surreal that um, Dr. Laporte kept that Christmas card and she kept it in a file and when I was with her, she went to the file and she brought it out. And I held this document signed by Anne and Carmen Morey on literally the worst day of everybody's lives, 1944, Christmas Day. And it sent
0: chills down my back. Wow. That's wow. That's that's amazing. Just a few minutes left, it's uh, it was interesting to me to contemplate this, Louise Laporte's um, you know the the decisions she made in Ravensbrook, and the, that sent her on a, a much different trajectory than uh, than Anne Spurry. Um Had Anne Spurry made some different decisions there, she, I guess, might have had uh, the life that Louise Laporte's had. Louise Deportes went on; she's known as a heroine of the resistance, a respectable doctor. She had that kind of a life.
1: Yes, yes. I mean, she was. Um, uh, she had all sorts of awards to her name. He was one of the most modest human beings i ever knew um she when she died she left instruction she didn't want to be remembered for anything um except a, a do- as a as a doctor but she had played a huge role in um in i mean she kept saying to me you know i knew i was going to die and i just had, had um, i was prepared for it, it was just the way it was going to be that's what ravensbrook was um, but Anne, Anne just didn't want to die. She didn't want to. She didn't want to uh, to, to to face a uh, a random execution, is the way she put it. And um, and um, Louise, or everybody called her Lulu in the camp, uh, said, "I I I'm prepared to die," and and that was the big difference between herself and and Anne. She said she met a lot of very scared people um, in Ravensbrook. a lot of scared women, but Anne um, took fear to a completely different level when she was in the company of Carmen Morey. Hmm.
0: Do you—this uh, uh, is speculation, I'm sure, on your part, I'll ask you to speculate— do you think, in the end, uh, Anne Spurry felt like she had paid the debt, atoned—
1: that's That's a major question. Uh, those who were with her at her death in nineteen ninety nine said she had a smile on her face. Um, I believe the kind of atonement that she had uh, that she had manufactured for herself essentially uh, required her to work right up until the very end. She was never going to allow herself. A break a um, retirement let's say that was not possible for her she would have to work right up until she died and in fact she did that she was still flying she was still helping people until a week before her death so she in that sense she had achieved everything she wanted but uh, I, I, it, it's pure speculation. I cannot say. Um, all I know is that she didn't have as comfortable a life as
0: most people suspected. I mm. think she struggled. Just have a minute left. You mentioned your uh, the the books coming to Kenya. You're you're taking copies over, and uh, um, I, I don't know what's that's going to be uh, That's going to be an experience for you and, and for the people who receive this full story.
1: Yeah, I think it will be. And I was, uh, I was hoping to do maybe an event at the Flying Doctors Service, but I was told it, was, it would have been inappropriate because the, uh, there were a lot of old-timers there that, um, whose sensibilities would have been hurt by this um, and will, will certainly be. And I, I think, uh, you know, I've, I've lived a lot of my life in and out of Kenya, and I have uh, many friends there um, who I adore, And I think it's quite possible I'm going to lose some friends on the basis of this book, uh, which is the price you pay for investigative journalism of any kind. Um, And I just think that um, uh, I felt compelled to tell this story because I believe that Anne is far more interesting um, in the round, in the whole round of her life, rather than uh, uh, just as as a... a photograph as a still shot of her life in Africa. So um, I, I made that decision. I, I believe in it still. I will always believe in it. And, um, and I'm sorry if I'm going to lose some friends over it, but there it is.
0: Well, it's an amazing story. The book is In Full Flight, a story of Africa and atonement. The author John Hemingway has uh, joined us from Bozeman, Montana. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure.
0: And thanks for listening to Access Utah. This week on Radio Lab. Very funny. What a funny idea. Mr. Google thought that right in front of the homes, they should build <laughs> a bus stop. A bus stop to nowhere. There's no bus coming. No bus? Never. The story of this week. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Bill Hader's new comedy, Barry, is about a hitman who discovers his real passion is acting. Even though Bill Hader isn't a hitman, he's still for the first time doing what he loves. He'll tell you about his directorial debut and a couple of stories from SNL. It's coming up on Q from PRI, Public Radio International. Join us this afternoon at 1 on
1: Utah Public Radio.